Now from the Milken Institute, responding to COVID-19, conversations with Mike Milken. Local travel, meaning travel 100 to 600 miles from where you live by car, is back to almost pre-COVID levels. We're not seeing air travel because people feel unsafe. Travel's probably one of the last to, to actually get back to robust growth. That's Barry Diller. He's the chairman and senior executive of IAC, a leading media and internet company, and Expedia Group, a major online destination for travel booking. He's also an American entertainment icon, having served as a movie and television producer and executive for a variety of networks and studios in a career spanning more than 55 years. He spoke with Milken Institute and Faster Cures chairman Mike Milken on Friday, May 29th. Barry, thank you for joining me this morning. Happy to be with you, Mike. How has your life changed in the last three or four months? There is no objectivity when you're going through something like this because you're living in the moment of it. It's hard to pull back and say, oh my God, I am here in the same basically place that I have been for now more than two months. I spend hours and hours a day on my computer, focused on a screen. I don't have peripheral vision of people. You know, this is one of those crises. We've never had, I mean, everybody says it, but it's true. Every crisis we've had before has been clear about what it was and what you do about it. Certainly 9-11, certainly the 2008 financial crisis. This one, because we really know so little, we don't know what really to do about it. So, I think I viewed it the same. You can understand a financial problem, 0809, heavily started with an overinvestment in residential real estate and the idea that any mortgage was good when you discovered they weren't. Here, no matter what we do, the ultimate decisions will be made on how we control this virus. Do we have a solution? So my life changed a great deal when I concluded that we needed to accelerate science. All of the 10 centers at the Milken Institute, we converted all of them to work on the virus. And I would say to you that the cooperation today between pharmaceutical companies, biotech companies, and the government has never been in this environment before as we race for a solution. And I think you, as I think back over all of our interactions, as we are about to enter in our fifth decade with Whoa. one another, our fifth <laughs> decade, Barry, um, is understanding the individual, the American public, and their reaction. What do you see as their reaction to this? Well, <laughs> there, there are really two forces at work that we're seeing, and they're getting more segregated every day. There's one faction that says, I want to go back to work. Stop telling me what to do. You don't have the issues I have. You have jobs. You're going to have jobs in the future. And then the people who are saying, Absolutely not. You must social distance. You must not continue life until we figure this out, etc. So you, those two forces are now being played out and will continue June, July, August. 
and see what those consequences are. I think once people push to stop isolating, there's no holding them back, I would say, up to martial law. So I think those forces continue despite the science, unless you get to some catastrophic number of cases. But that's what I think is happening. So my life over the last, say, three months, 18 hours a day has been trying to look at the facts, and I know you do. And when you look at what occurred in Italy, you see 96% of the people that died had preconditions, one precondition, two or three. And I agree with you. I feel Americans outside of maybe New York or New Jersey um, and parts of Los Angeles maybe, but it never had a surge in California, have felt they tried that, it's over, and they're moving on. I've been doing these podcasts, and I did one with Paul Romer, who won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Paul's view is we should just test everybody and get immediate responses, and then let you know whether you can go out or not go out based on accurate tests. And those that don't test accordingly uh, won't go out, and those that do test clear will go out. And those that are at significant risk, those send chemotherapy or other things where their immune system has been suppressed, uh, will not go out. And so there are different approaches today to it. In a podcast I did, Barry, with Joe Tsai, co-founder of Alibaba, at their headquarters, they had about 40,000 employees, and they went from 40,000 to a couple hundred for maintenance, but didn't really interact with each other. And they're back today to 35, 36,000. And they have done it by, yes, taking everyone's temperature, but also having green go or yellow or red. And you can't go in the building unless you're green. But I have been very optimistic, Barry. More than 100 vaccines, 12 into humans, uh, antivirals, only four people passed away in Hong Kong with a three-part antiviral. And today, those antibodies where people that have had it are being turned into serum that quite possibly can give a person immunity. So many of the companies that you've been involved with interact with travel, leisure. How do you open a Broadway show? How do the actors feel? Uh, about it? How do the patrons feel about it? Who's sitting next to you? Are you selling every other seat? Uh, and what are you doing in a city that was ground zero uh, for this virus? But let's take a look at your own portfolio and how you view travel, movement to hotels, airlines, cruise ships, etc. What's going to happen? We see signs in China, in uh, not so much in Western Europe, but in Asia. We certainly see them in the U.S., where local travel, meaning travel 100 to 600 miles from where you live by car, is fairly robust. And it's back to almost pre-COVID levels. That's for vacation homes. That's for places where, again, you can drive to. Resort areas in the panhandle area are packed, actually. So 
we're not seeing and won't see air travel, certainly international air travel, though little domestic air travel is picking up. But we're not going to see that until people feel safer about being in planes. And as you know, there's no such thing as social distancing in an airplane. We're not seeing it yet because people feel unsafe. Travel's probably one of the last to, to actually get back to robust growth, much less parity with what it was last year. I don't think travel comes back certainly until 21, maybe 22, uh, which is why I think we've got to protect these airlines. We cannot let this air grid that's been built over these last years for getting people anywhere in the world. The infrastructure needs to be protected. I hope it will be. So, Barry, I'm assuming if there was a vaccine available in September, October, that people believed in, you would have a much different view and that the bent up demand to travel once they felt they were safe would snap back very quickly. My experience, Mike, was this. We actually bought Expedia 40 days before 9-11. We had it in that transaction a material adverse change clause, which 9-11, given travel shut down completely, was able to be exercised. And we all sat around and said, really, should we spend this at that time, real money, a billion or so, to buy Expedia under these conditions? Or should we just get out of the deal? We have the right to. Somebody in the room said, if there's life, there's travel. I heard it in my ear. I said, we're closing the deal. And by the way, it turned out right. Two months, travel pent up, demand came back flourishing. I expect the same will happen. The problem is this time, the question of if there's life, there's travel. The question is, is if there is life, sustainable, countable life. Anyway. I have spent such a significant amount of time on this area and my family challenges, my father's cancer, my mother-in-law's cancer, Lori and my children's health issues has thrust me into the medical area for almost 50 years and trying to search for an acceleration of cures. I was unsuccessful in accelerating any science and melanoma fast enough to save my father's life. But today, it's so much different. The virus DNA that was put out on January 11th by the Chinese scientists. Anyone in the world knew the DNA of the virus, and 63 days later, nine weeks, Moderna had a vaccine on March 16th into a human being. That was not possible five years ago, 10 years ago. So I am optimistic, uh, based on science, that we'll have a solution today for it. But your point is well taken. But one of the things that you and I have spoken about over a long period of time, it's a market of stocks. It's not a stock market. And these type of events really drive that home. So as I look at the seven most valuable companies in the world as measured by the stock market, not counting um, Aramco, every single one of them believed in one thing. They believed in technology and the internet, which you based your company on. 
you have succeeded where very few have because very few have transitioned very to a world of connectivity from the world that they were in. And if I look at the values of those companies that you grew up with and were familiar with in the mailroom at William Morris in the 1960s, Columbia, MGM, Warner Brothers, Universal, Paramount, UA. None of them are independent in a sense today. Uh, Disney I'm leaving out because it had actually a pretty small library back in those days. And when I look at the values today, Fox, Viacom that has not only Paramount but CBS, the gaming companies, the video gaming companies of Electronic Arts and Activision are worth substantially more than these companies that we grew up with. And so as you step back, I was looking at something that you said, and this was a number of years ago, when someone asked you on a session we were on, is Netflix friend or foe? You responded, foe. What did these companies that you were studying, their movies and television shows and other things back in the 1960s, what did they miss that had dominated the media scene so much for so many decades? They were never prescient, ever. Let's be clear about that. From the earliest days of the movie business, the first threat, so to speak, to the nascent movie business was radio. Actually, Paramount bought half of Bill Paley's fledging radio network, but sold it a few years later. Throughout the development from movies to television, movie studios hated television, thought it was a threat, which it was to their business. They didn't invest in it in the early period. They tried to block it. The same was true about, you'd think, cable networks. You'd think that the all-news cable network would have come from one of the three networks broadcast news operations. Instead, it came from the left field of Mr. Turner in Atlanta. So each development, the incumbent media powerhouses, these Hollywood companies, studios, really got it wrong. However, because they had hegemony over the worldwide movie business infrastructure, they were able, after they'd made these mistakes, when these businesses got to a sufficient size, they were able, through the ingenuity of Steve Ross, through Charlie Bluedorn, through Lou Wasserman too, they were able to simply acquire those companies that had four new areas of competition. And so they kept their hegemony. They basically kept it until a very few years ago when it ended for them. It ended for them when digital came along. And unlike their ability previously absolutely true in all sectors to buy whoever was competing with them, they came up against Amazon and Netflix. And their ability to buy those companies didn't exist because they were vastly larger than them. So all at once, in a couple of years, 
Hollywood lost forever, by the way, its hegemony over the media business. That's gone. It is the only interesting surprise is, is up until five, ten years ago, right in that period, they had held on to it for almost a hundred years, not through their own innovation and ingenuity, but by their economic might. But their economic might finally came up against a, a very hard wall of greater economic might, and they're finished. Netflix, when I said they were a foe, that was before they had any market power. John Malone and I together said, why doesn't cable create their own Netflix? But that couldn't be accomplished for various you know, historical reasons. But the companies, instead of saying, this is going to be our ultimate destruction, this direct relationship with the consumer, instead, they sold all their libraries to this new company, allowing it to crush them eventually. I analogize it to people who build a rocket, set it off, and then run to where it's going to fall. <laughs> now, why do you make that analogy? The rocket analogy? Yes, why do you make that? Well, I make it because I'm 50 miles away from where a rocket's going to go <laughs> off tomorrow to, to uh, the first time in, I don't know, decade or so, so. I'd like to go back on how you see, Barry, the virus that we've experienced, this experience changing people. In a sense, <clears throat> a person who worked in a grocery store has now become essential. A person that was picking fruit in the fields. Will we have substantially different views of jobs when this is over? Of that nurse that was willing to work in a hospital during this time? Or someone that played a vital role in food distribution or the delivery person who's delivering things to your home. Will we view these jobs differently in the future and understanding as we come out of this, how dependent we are on each other? Interesting question, Mike. I don't know the answer, but if you really want to deal with the essence of income inequality, it is the value we place on different roles and how we compensate them. I, I don't have the answer to this at all, but I do think that a lot of us, and us being, you know, very broad, let's call it business community, are beginning to think things through slightly differently than they slightly, because I think, you know, it's only right now somewhat superficial because we haven't yet engaged. You know, we're still not back to work. Uh, it's just this next three months is the Petri dish for what's going to happen. And what happens in these next three months as we re-engage in work, we figure out, are there different work rules for, uh, for office work? Are there different values placed on some of these things? I think the mess, and it is a mess, of the next couple of months is going to teach us many things. And so I don't have the answer, but I do have this. And I think I share this with a lot of people. I've got a lot of questions. 
Barry, I look forward to hearing those questions and working with you. And thank you for joining me today. Thank you. To you too. Bye-bye. Find more episodes on iHeartRadio, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or milkeninstitute.org slash podcast, where you'll also find the latest COVID-19 updates. Until next time, stay safe and healthy.